This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Lots of chatter around a referendum in this city and LRT. The discussion that never seems to go away. Even once a decision you thought was already made, they keep asking the same questions over and over again. And, of course, now as we're getting uh, down to push comes to shove with the LRT and what's happening with it, uh, some politicians are calling for a referendum. Is it that easy? What's involved in a referendum? And shouldn't you kind of figure all of that out before you start banging away for a referendum? Because apparently uh, one legal expert thinks that two-thirds council is needed in order to get a referendum on the next uh, municipal election ballot. So, again, is this the same old, same old where people are stomping and, and jumping up and down and making it, well, trying to make it look like they're doing something, and really it's just an exercise in futility. No reason to do it other than politics. Uh, to talk more about all of this, uh, Andrew Sancton is with us, professor in the Department of Political Science, Western University, uh, and an expert in urban politics and local government, and he is with us now. Hello, Andrew. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks, Scott. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, is it that easy, Andrew, to just all of a sudden call a referendum in your favorite town or city? Uh, it's not that uh, difficult. The uh, uh, council has to decide to uh, have one, and um, uh, they pass it with bylaw to that effect, and then... Uh, it would go on uh, the ballot at the next election, or it conceivably it could even go on the ballot, uh, have a special election uh, before then. Um, I understand there's some complications in the Hamilton case, but in, a, in general, it's not that difficult. Uh, it has to be a question that relates to municipal government. You can't, uh, municipal council can't, you know, ask a question about nuclear weapons or something. Um, and people, if, if people don't think the question is clear or if they don't think it is in the municipal jurisdiction, then there are appeal mechanisms. But if it's a question about something that municipalities have jurisdiction over, it's normally not that hard to have a have a, a referendum. Now, there is one other uh, caveat here. In order for the results of the referendum to be binding, uh, you have to get a 50% turnout, and of course, 50% of the people answering yes to the question, and uh, and that's a pretty uh, impre- tough hurdle for many questions to uh, get over. So, uh, in this case, there was a legal expert that was questioned on this, and uh, apparently two-thirds of councils, uh, a vote on council is needed in order to put this forth. How does that all work? Well, um, yeah, the legal expert is indeed a, a very uh, well-regarded legal expert, George Rusty, and I'm not a lawyer. Um, and so I'm not giving legal advice, and I'm certainly not being paid for it, as he was. But... Um, um, the issue, uh, as I understand it, is that the council has already decided this question of the LRT. Um, and normally, if the council uh, wants to change its mind on an issue, it have to get you have to get two thirds of the of the vote uh, from the council to, to change that. It's not clear to me whether a decision to have a referendum is, in fact, a decision to change uh, uh, the decision of the council. It arguably is another kind of uh, decision. But I haven't uh, read Mr. Rusty's opinion, and I gather nobody else outside the council has. 
Um, so I would be very interested in reading that to see what his logic is on this. But I mean, he's he is really a, a legal expert, and I'm I'm not. So uh, we do have to take his opinion seriously. Uh, obviously, on city council, there are some calling for a referendum on the LRT. Um, is there a way to do this? Uh, constructively, or is this something that will just get bogged down in what the question is, this, that, or the other, and, and in the end, just delay everything? Well, I'm assuming that that is the object of the exercise, right? I mean, the people who want to have the referendum, as I understand, are people who are opposed to the LRT, mm-hmm. and they do want to delay things. So, uh, um, um, if, if, if they are successful in delaying things, uh, then they would have accomplished their objective. And certainly if, if they do get a referendum and if most of the people vote against it, um, vote against the LRT, and even if they don't get 50% turnout, I mean, that would be a pretty powerful uh, message that I think that the council would have to take into account. But... Um, uh, to me, there's no, there's no question, I, as I understand it, and you people in Hamilton know much more about the internal politics, but I thought the whole exercise here uh, was designed to delay the LRT. Yeah. Uh, referendums generally, when do they work? I mean, we've certainly seen what's happened uh, with the Brexit situation and, and so on and so forth. When do, when do referendums work? When don't they work? Uh, well, that depends on what you... Uh, uh, what, what kind of results you want. I think it is generally acknowledged that it is hard to get voters to vote in favor of uh, uh, changes. Uh, we've certainly had that in Ontario on the voting system. We had it on the Me- on Meech Lake. Um, and the, as you said, the Brexit one is, uh, is sort of a negative vote. Um, um, I think it's interesting to think to remember that uh, even before my time, but uh, in the uh, most of the history of Ontario municipalities, there have been lots of referendums, and uh, um, it used to be the case that if a municipality wanted to borrow money, uh, they had to uh, get approval from the voters in a referendum. So it's only relatively recently that we haven't had a lot of local uh, referendums. Um, and I think there's a place for them in our uh, local politics. But, uh, you know, it does require citizens to pay attention, to be open-minded about things. Um, and uh, I, I, when do they work? Well, if your objective is to stop things, um, I think they work very well. If your intention is to enable councils to get things done uh, relatively quickly... Um, they probably don't work very well. So if the intention of a referendum is usually to disable, uh, really isn't that counterproductive? At the end of the day, I think most people think a referendum is to give a voice to the people, not necessarily pull them out when you know you're going to get a negative vote. Uh, Yeah, referendums do give a a voice to the people. And I'm just um, stating a fact that it seems nowadays anyway that um, um, people are not particularly in favor of um, uh, government ch- of governments changing things um, so uh, yeah I mean that's I say they're not good if you expect governments to do things it all depends on on your perspective uh, but it could be that if we had referendums more frequently if it was more part of our democratic life uh, then um, uh, people would realize that they can't 
vote against everything all the time because nothing's going to happen. Hmm. Uh, is the public engaged enough to make decisions like this? It depends on the uh, on the uh, issue. Um, I think uh, uh, generally the public doesn't seem to have been too engaged on uh, changing the electoral system. Um, I think people were kind of engaged on the, uh, the Meech Lake uh, issue in uh, Canada. Um, I know there have been a few referendums in Ontario at the local level where people have been engaged. There was one in what's now the city of Kawartha Lakes, used to be Victoria County, where uh, people voted overwhelmingly in a referendum to undo the amalgamation that was done there. Um, people were engaged in that. The government didn't act on that. Um, it depends on the issue, I think. And as I understand it, the LRT is quite a big issue in Hamilton. So maybe people are and would be engaged in a referendum on that question. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at the, pro- at the Brexit vote here, and many look at that as, as a protest vote, uh, not liking what was going on, the direction things were heading, um, and, and just wanted out, just wanted out and didn't really have a plan B. Do we think through things on, in, in referendums? Are we, are we always aware of what the change could be or the alternative could be if we don't take it or do take it? Uh, that's a good question. I think uh, often people aren't uh, aware of all the implications, and that's certainly an argument against uh, uh, a simple referendum, sort of uh, where you've, it's black and white, yes or no, which is pretty much what a referendum has to, has to be. But um, um, sure, it's not uh, at all clear what uh, what the alternatives would be to many of these things. So uh, um, yeah, I mean, the, what you just stated is the uh, most powerful argument against referendums that um, um, people often don't know what the alternatives are. Uh, what about the question itself and how it's worded? How do we arrive at that? I mean, it's many will say, uh, just like we're seeing with the Brexit vote after it was over. No, no, that's that's. Let's have another one. Let's do it yeah. again. I mean, how well, many times can you keep, you know, passing this, passing the buck to the public, so to speak? Well, uh, I don't think anybody's argued about the Brexit vote, I, but but the Brexit question. I think most people have said that was a pretty clear. Question. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and uh, in the Municipal Elections Act uh, in Ontario, it requires um, that the question be uh, neutral and that the only answers can be yes or no. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is an avenue for appeal if uh, somebody thinks the question isn't uh, neutral. So, uh, um, you know, if, I think it's a, probably a pretty good uh, uh, system. But when you say, you know, how many times can you ask? I mean, people aren't asked very much uh, in, in, uh, on these questions in municipalities now. I don't know. When was the last referendum in Hamilton? Yeah, there, wasn't, point. There, there wasn't a referendum on the amalgamation. There wasn't a referendum on a lot of other big questions that you would think people would be asked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in principle, I don't think it's a bad idea to have a referendum on the LRT. But uh, it might be a little late in the game after council's already approved it. So, I mean, that's... That is the sticking point right here, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Would the question be simply, do you want LRT or not? Is that a neutral question? Um, I think it would have to be along those lines. I mean, you wouldn't want to say, you know, do you want to... LRT that goes uh, from this street to that street right. and give about six different options, that certainly wouldn't be allowed. So it would have to be a simple, uh, to the point, it's black and white, yes or no? That's what the uh, Ontario law says right now, yes. 
So in this situation uh, that Hamilton finds itself in now with, uh, as you said, a little late in the game in order to, to, to pursue this, what do you think the, the chances are here? Uh, well, uh, I uh, would like to see this legal opinion before I um, gave a clear result, because I, as I understand it, if, um, if that is the 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 real decision that you have to have a two-thirds majority, um, then as I understand it, it's not very likely that the referendum would uh, happen. Um, but uh, my guess is that, um, and I, that one way or another, the referendum is probably not going to happen. Um, but if it did, um, it would be uh, uh, quite a battle, I guess, and it would slow down um, the whole process of the, of the government's uh, policy towards, uh, you know, building these LRTs, and it would, I think it would have a big impact on uh, uh, tr- transit issues in the GTAH uh, generally. Do you think uh, generally when, comes to referem- when it comes to referendums, you said uh, uh, they haven't been used a lot recently, do you think there's room for more? Do you think that's, that's what's missing in politics? Um, I think, um, yeah, I think there's more room for uh, referendums, particularly at the local level on on uh, on some of these uh, big issues. Uh, I've studied, as I've mentioned, I think a couple of times already, the amalgamations in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was just scandalous that we didn't have uh, public referendums on uh, um, amalgamations. Um, um, that was you know, an absolutely fundamental question about whether a municipality is going to continue to exist or not. And people had no voice in that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think on those, on big questions, I think referendums are uh, a good thing to have. Andrew Sankton has been with us, professor in the Department of Political Science, Western University, and an expert in urban politics and local government. Andrew, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Okay. Fine, Scott. Thank you. Take Bye. care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Rumors have been swirling around that the Canadian government may impose a new tax on Canadian Internet access. Are you kidding me? You'd think that the government's learned that there's certain things you don't dink with with Canadians. Number one, they're Tim Hortons. Number two, the cable, and I would say Internet in the same phrase. I mean, it's just, are we not already paying some of the highest prices in the world? And now we're going to uh, come up with a new tax. David Christopher, communications manager with Open Media, is with us and on the line now. Hello, David. How are you today? Hello. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate it. Explain to everybody what Open Media is. Uh, we're a nonprofit organization, uh, and we work to keep the internet open, affordable, uh, and surveillance free. Uh, and so, of course, the idea that the government might be about to impose uh, an additional Internet tax on all of our Internet bills uh, is something that we would very strongly oppose, not least because, as you point out, uh, Canadians are already paying uh, some of the highest uh, bills in the world for uh, Internet access. So this would be a, another really big step in the wrong direction. So is tax as bad a word in your vocabulary as regulation? Um, I don't know if you've 
some taxes are good, some taxes, some regulations are good, but this is an example of a really bad one. You know, if, if you look at the kind of things that, we, that people agree we should be taxing, they tend to be negative things uh, like alcohol or tobacco. Uh, the government places extra taxes on those, and while people might grump about that, uh, but generally uh, people understand that that's a good thing because alcohol and tobacco are, tend to have negative impacts on our society. With the internet, it's the opposite. Uh, the more people who are using the internet, the better it is for our society, the better it is for our digital economy. Uh, ironically, the better it is even for Canadian content because it lets more uh, Canadians get online uh, uh, and express themselves. So uh, this idea, which is coming you know, from uh, uh, big publishers, from uh, uh, the broadcasting industry, basically, uh, it's just a really bad idea, and I certainly hope Heritage Minister uh, Mal- Jolie, uh, doesn't uh, proceed with it. Uh, do you think that this is almost like uh, a sin tax? They're viewing it as a sin tax? Well, I, I think the point I was making, you know, a sin tax should be on uh, things that uh, have negative impacts on society. But do you, think that, do you think they're viewing the Internet as the same way they are cigarettes and, and alcohol? Oh, I, th- I think if they are, that would be that would be a, a really crazy thing to do because all the evidence, uh, not just in Canada but from around the world, is that the more people in society who are connected uh, to the internet, uh, the better that is for for the cohesiveness of society, but also for the digital economy. You know, you think of how difficult it would it must be to uh, look for a job, for example, if you don't have internet access. Uh, yet even to this day, uh, we have a quarter of uh, 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 Canadian households who don't have home internet access. I think that number rises to almost half uh, of uh, low-income households uh, don't have uh, the internet at home. Uh, so we've already got a really big problem on our hands. Uh, we should be working to actually make sure every Canadian can get online. And to do that, we need to lower the cost. Uh, So the idea that we'd have this uh, extra tax that would make things even more expensive, force Canadians, some low-income Canadians, this would make the difference between being connected and not connected. And it's just a terrible idea. So what do we pay for now? What are we taxed on now? What would the, and how would this new tax generate more? What, what would they tax that isn't already being taxed? I think most think, I think most think everybody, everything is being taxed. So what is it now? Yeah, I mean, uh, the internet bills are already subject to uh, the usual, you know, GST and PST or right. HST, depending where you are in the country. Um, so, uh, you know, internet users already pay that, that basic tax. I think the idea that it, there would be some extra tax on top of that just because it was internet uh, is, uh, is, is, is what we're really sort of sounding the alarm about here. And uh, So is this like an access? Is, like, is this like an internet access tax? Like, in, At what yeah, point would they tax you? They would, they, it looks like the proposal coming from the broadcasters is that they would be taxing all access to the Internet. So it would most likely be an additional tax that you would pay on your monthly right. Internet bill or your monthly cell phone bill or, or both. So who wants this? Uh, it's the, it seems like it's the broadcasters and mm-hmm. some of the, the publishing industry. You know, newspapers have been struggling for many years. Um, lots of people are looking at, you know, how we can support the newspaper industry. Uh, how can we kind of make the idea of Canadian content uh, make sense in the 21st century? The fact is, there are a lot better ways to achieve those goals. 
uh, than through uh, imposing a tax on uh, on everybody's internet bills. Uh, you know that we we could, for example, uh, impose a sales tax on uh, foreign streaming services operating here, such as Netflix, which currently doesn't. Uh, you know, you don't pay uh, uh, GST on your uh, Netflix mm. uh, bill. Uh, perhaps that could be a way of raising revenue or, or just taking it from from general taxation. But uh, certainly, you know, to, to tax everyone's internet bills would really be to uh, uh, place this real burden, uh, especially on the lowest income Canadians who are already struggling with these bills. Uh, and, you know, as I say, we're really going to be working to uh, um, make sure this is opposed and hopefully doesn't see the light of day. Uh, being a part of traditional media, this kind of old school thinking really irks me, uh, David. And, and I don't understand why everyone thinks that subsidizing something is the way to go. Why can't traditional media just incorporate new media more? I mean, isn't this about content, not controlling <laughs> the distribution? Uh, you know, that, that's a, that's a really good question, and you know, it's uh, a, a lot of the debate about uh, about this. You know, I must say, it's, it's very complex. There are very strongly held uh, opinions on on all sides. Um, I think even if you if you do buy into the argument that we should be supporting uh, uh, these industries in some way, uh, there are better ways to do that. Um, others would say that, you know, maybe it's up to the industries themselves to, to, to move along uh, and kind of uh, uh, embrace the digital age more, find new models uh, of operating. Uh, you know, there are some successful ones uh, out there. Uh, but I think whichever stance you take on that question, uh, the idea of uh, imposing an internet uh, access tax is uh, is uh, counterproductive. Where is the government on this? How did this whole rumor start? Well, uh, it all started a, f- a few months ago. Uh, the Canadian Heritage uh, have been running uh, uh, consultations uh, across the country uh, on the whole issue of Canadian content, the future of uh, uh, broadcasting, a really sweeping consultation actually taking in a, a whole... Uh, range of these issues, a lot of which haven't really been looked at since, uh, you know, for 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, so uh, certainly it's time uh, for, for those issues to be unpacked and looked at. Uh, and it's really a part of those consultations that it seems like the publishing industry, uh, uh, big broadcasters are, are making this pitch. Uh, they're try- they, they kind of, I think, look on this as a, as a quick fix uh, that, you know, would give a sort of a rapid injection of funds. Uh, Three quarters of Canadians have internet access access and they'd all have to pay this tax. Uh, but really, uh, they haven't thought this through at all. Uh, you know, uh, it would end up causing huge, uh, having this hugely negative impact uh, on Canadians right across the country, literally anyone with a cell phone or anyone with uh, internet access. Uh, and it wouldn't succeed, really, in, 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 in pro- you know, that propping up uh, uh, these struggling industries in that way isn't the answer. Um, uh, if, if funding is the issue, there are much better ways uh, to raise funding, uh, as, uh, as experts have pointed out. By bringing Canadian content into this argument, is that disguising this as a Canadian content sort of vision when really it is a tax? Oh, it's, it's clearly a tax. I don't think Canadians will buy that for a, for a moment. Uh, I think, you know, and I I think it will be, if the the government actually embraced this idea, I think there will be a real uh, firestorm of opposition, and from right across the political spectrum as well, uh, you know, uh, this 
the idea of an internet tax certainly didn't appear in the uh, Liberals' uh, election platform a, a year ago, and so I think if they were going to suddenly spring this upon the, upon the public, there'd be a very uh, a, a, a fiery uh, response. Um, so, uh, you know, but at, at this point, though, there are really powerful interests uh, uh, pushing for this idea, uh, so it's really important. I think uh, I'm glad that we're debating this uh, this morning. I think it's important that uh, uh, Canadians sort of realise this is uh, this is going on. This is a potential threat, uh, and we're going to be looking at ways in which we can uh, help ensure that Canadians can can speak out on this and get that message to the government. Uh, considering that before we even had this discussion, we've had others about why we have the highest internet and data rates and such. It seems or some of the highest uh, in the free world. Uh, do you think that's going to jive when, you know, out of one side we're talking about how do we lower these and then on the other hand, um, you know, we're talking about a tax? I mean, does anybody have the appetite for this? No, it, 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 you're quite right. It's, it's completely inconsistent and not least with the, another government department, the NAVD Baines, the uh, Department of uh, Innovation that used to be in, in Industry Canada, is now, uh, it, they're now looking, uh, along with the CRTC, at how we can actually expand internet access and how we can tackle uh, these problems of very high bills, uh, too many Canadians being forced to, to, to offline uh, as a result of these high prices. You know, the CRTC has actually been running a really detailed uh, consultations on this issue, uh, looking at uh, the whole question of uh, what a basic internet service that all Canadians could access uh, would look like. Uh, so the idea that you'd suddenly impose this uh, punitive uh, uh, tax uh, on internet access would completely cut across uh, some of the government's own uh, uh, efforts on this. It would really uh, undermine that. So, uh, uh, you know, and uh, so just all in all, it's really difficult to see, uh, you know, any kind of any kind of case uh, for this. Uh, what what do you think the solution is here? You talked about other ways of, of generating revenue. I mean, where this is, I think there's a two two sides to this argument here. There's old traditional media that just doesn't want to change or just doesn't want to give up uh, what they've been doing, and yet on the other side, there's there's those that are um, that are trying to make it work and, and trying to bridge the gap in, in, in some way. Uh, nobody thinks that you should uh, subsidize something. You know, obviously that's not a long-term solution. On the other hand, there is great concern over the loss of local content, uh, local newsrooms, especially within the newspaper industry. Uh, it's not like we're all the same. We sort of serve a different purpose. Newspapers, their number one uh, feature is the fact that they have depth and, and investigative reporters to do this sort of thing. Uh, how do we how do we keep that that good level, that high level of investigative reporting and local coverage, and still, you know, and not subsidize these? I, I do think things need to need to change. I think earlier you talked about, you know, uh, the need to embrace the uh, uh, digital era. Uh, there are some interesting uh, ideas uh, floating around out there, uh, some uh, not least from uh, Professor Michael Geist, who's really one of Canada's uh, top experts on these issues. Uh, one of the things he's uh, sort of putting on the table is the idea of uh, non uh, sort of a non-profit funding model uh, for exactly that kind of detailed 
investigative journalistic uh, work. Uh, I know in the United States they have uh, Pro uh, Publica. It's a website that's uh, a non-profit that effectively funds uh, some really excellent uh, and detailed uh, investigative journalist uh, uh, pieces. And, uh, you know, I think we should be looking at uh, ideas like that um, or ideas like, you know, sales tax, just simply applying the same sales tax that already applies to Canadian streaming services uh, to uh, foreign uh, uh, streaming services. I, I think that would be something that most people would uh, would think is pretty sensible. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, one of the real things that would, would help the, the Canadian uh, content industry is simply making sure more Canadians can get online. Uh, the more people who can get online, uh, the more uh, easy it is for, for people to express themselves, uh, you know, through the whole range of channels that are now open to anyone with a an internet connection you know you can upload videos to youtube you can express yourself on facebook you could start a blog that then becomes uh, uh really popular and even maybe that picked up you know there are newspapers now that are actually running columns regular columns from bloggers you can kind of see how the two worlds uh, uh come together there but uh you know so, so many more better ways in which we can approach this uh, than by uh, this kind of really knee-jerk uh, supposed solution that would simply basically be taxing the internet in order to subsidize uh, struggling industries. I think we need a far more imaginative uh, approach than that. So where is this going? Where does this go from here, David? Does this have legs? Will this keep going? Uh, will this fall? Difficult to tell at this point. At the moment, this is coming from the broadcasters and the publishers. Uh, they're taking part in this consultation as are many, many other groups. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, uh, you know, I believe this consultation is going to be ongoing. Uh, parts of it, I think, haven't really even gotten uh, uh, started yet. So I think this is going to be a real topic of national debate over the coming months. As to whether this will have legs or not, that's really going to be up to uh, the Heritage Minister, uh, Melanie Jolie, uh, and the federal government. Uh, she's going to really play a decisive role here. I, I would hope uh, that she'll do the right thing and rule out this uh, proposal uh, before it does uh, uh, g- gain steam, uh, because I think you know, that's simply what Canadians uh, would expect her to do. And for a government that's committed to expanding uh, digital access to all Canadians, uh, this will be a very uh, retrograde uh, step indeed. Uh, you talked about creating uh, almost a public hub for investigative journalism or, or, or things that would, would replace the newsrooms that we've we've known for years and years and years. Would that be similar to like a CBC model? Would that be a government subsidized thing? Would it support itself? Um, you know, I think that's a, that's a, a really good question. That there are, I think, the, there are just a number of. Mo- and now, I, I must caution: I'm not an expert on uh, sort of media and, mm-hmm. uh, and the future of uh, journalism. But it does seem to me, just from my own reading of this, that there are a number of different models that we could pursue. Uh, the sort of public uh, broadcasting model with the CBC uh, is, is certainly one way. Uh, I know ProPublica operates in a different way. That's it's all true of voluntary donations. Uh, uh, to that uh, non-profit, and the mission of the non-profit is to support uh, quality, investigative, non-partisan journalism, and it seems to be working uh, pretty well for them. So I think there are all kinds of interesting ideas uh, that we should explore 
Uh, and, you know, Canada is not alone facing these challenges. Pretty, pretty much every uh, uh, country in the uh, right across the world, newspapers are struggling. Every country is facing these challenges. Uh, there are lots of interesting ideas uh, popping up all over the place. And, uh, you know, I think once we can get that, if we can really just put this idea of the ISP tax, uh, the Internet tax uh, behind us, I think that would open the way for a more reasonable debate uh, all around. David Christopher has been with us, communications manager with Open Media, talking about rumors swirling that the Canadian government uh, is looking at imposing a new tax on Canadian Internet access. David, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks very much indeed for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Lots to talk about politically, including uh, Lisa Raitt stepping down. Does that mean she is entering the race for the federal uh, conservatives? And when we see what's happened with people like Donald Trump in the United States, remember how when that show first started, uh, Kevin O'Leary was floating balloons as to whether he should run for the federal conservatives? Has Trump's, I guess, performance of late pretty much killed any uh, of those ideas? To talk more about all of this, Dr. Anna Esselman is with us, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Waterloo, and with us now. Good afternoon, Doctor. How are you today? I am good, thank you, Scott. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Let's start with Lisa Raitt. Uh, stepping down as finance critic, is, the, is this a clear signal she's making a run? She says, uh, discussions on the future of the leadership of the party. What does that mean? Well, I think that looks pretty good in terms of her intentions for you know throwing her hat in the ring. Uh, Tony Clement, of course, uh, just stepped down, and of course, uh, with really not much uh, uh, pomp and circumstance, kind of the way he got into this race. Do you think this was a factor in Lisa Raitt's uh, decision to, to try for this? Uh, I, I don't think so. I think that when you're making a decision to run for the leadership of the party, that a lot of thought goes into that. So if she is sort of deciding right now that she's going to make an announcement about it or announce it pretty soon, uh, it's probably unlikely that Tony Clement dropping out is the causal factor that has propelled her to do this. Um, and really, with Tony Clement dropping out, I think it actually shows that her chances are as good as anyone's in this race. He, um, you know, Tony Clement's a really well-known, a well-known guy, and uh, he seemed to have some problems with fundraising. And if he's out, I think that means that there's, you know, there's a possibility that, that she could make a good run. Are people still interested in the old guard, and do you think that's what happened in Tony Clement's case? Uh, oh, yeah, no, I think people are. I mean, people... One thing about political parties and leaderships is that uh, the people who are really affected, the the party members, they are interested in having someone who's loyal to the party Mm -hmm. and who has shown loyalty to the party, who's been around for a while. And uh, and certainly Tony Clement is one of those people. Uh, We see, though, that with other leadership contenders, too, like Michael Chong and Maxime Bernier. Uh, and and Lisa Raitt is is one of them also. So it's not necessarily a rejection of the old guard at all. Uh, new blood is always great, but party members also like to know that the person who wants to lead them is someone who actually has a stake in the party and a stake in the party's future. Are are any of these candidates resonating with uh, with anyone at this point? I mean, there was a recent Toronto Star poll that said 54% uh, would prefer someone else. Yeah, it's it's hard to say because I mean this this decision's not till May. Mm-hmm. Uh right now this leadership race is about 
the Conservative Party and members within that Conservative Party. It's their decision that they're that they're that they have to make. The public in general probably is not thinking very much about how they're going to vote three years from now. Yeah. So while there might not be interest right now, it's it's totally possible that whoever they select becomes very popular by the time the next election rolls around. And from what we can tell from fundraising, it looks like Kelly Leach, you know, has the has the lead on on most of the contenders in this field. But there's still there's still time until May. Uh, how, how odd is that, or ironic is that that the the, the person who is creating the most controversy within the party itself is the one that seems to ha- to be the favorite, although by a slim margin at this point. Where does that leave the progressive conservatives? Well, I think Kelly Leach started early, and the advantage of going early is that you can actually fundraise from people who want to give early. So at the moment, she's raised the most money. It's not to say that in the end that she will have the most votes mm-hmm. at the leadership selection. But she's kind of leading. I mean, if you're leading the conversation on policy instead of responding to the conversation about policy, then that's helpful in a leadership uh, in a leadership race. So you, Tony Clement, for the most part, was actually responding to policies put out by, you know, Kelly Leach and Maxine Bernier. So, in some ways, that might also have made some conservative supporters uh, or conservative members look to him and say, "Where's the?" trailblazing ideas that, mm. that you should be laying out here. And for the most part, he was responding to, to others. But again, when it's actually time for the vote, um, things can change. It seems that uh, members of the party, though, are trying to distance themselves from Kelly Leach. They're trying, you know, that's not the way we think. That's the way she thinks. Uh, do we have, is this another Trump scenario in the making that it, and eventually they're going to have to jump on? Or do you think this is going to be an issue towards the end? No, I think that this is, um, I mean, this is, you're trying to re, you know, win a leadership race. Mm-hmm. So uh, often leadership candidates, when you are, you know, running for this kind of position within your own party, you tend to be a little more ideological, you know, to one side or the other, mm-hmm. because the party members are more ideological. But when it comes time to a general contest, particularly in Canada, leaders have to broker different interests across, the, you know, across the country. Uh, this is where we see Trump failing, that he's not brokering interests very well. But it tends to be that in Canadian elections, leaders leaders do that a lot more effectively. Will her position, uh, especially on things like immigration, do you think this is going to come back to haunt her, though? I mean, even if she does lighten it up as she gets into a, if she gets into a general election? Absolutely. This is the thing with the Internet. Yeah. <laughs> that whatever you say is always recorded. So uh, nominations, whether they're, you know, in the American system or even in the Canadian system, um, certainly the other parties are going to keep track of anything that they would deem to be controversial. Uh, so it might work in trying to win a leadership. It may not work in a general election, or at the very least, you have to know that this will come up. And for Kelly Leach, this might be the kind of thing that she's perfectly willing to defend, you know, that she believes in this and that her supporters will believe in this. But it's certainly fodder that can come up for, for an election. How impactful it will be um, will be determined when a general election comes around. What about the thought that everyone's just assuming that Trudeau's going to take the next election, so nobody wants to even enter into this race? They'll give them this one, and then they'll go for the next one. Is, is that valid? 
Well, politics can turn on a dime. So your your great popularity one year can be way down in the dumps another year. I, Trudeau has certainly been enjoying a very long honeymoon. His support has actually broadened and deepened across the country. But we do know he's taken a stronger hand with the provinces in terms of what he wants done on climate change. We know that the health care accord negotiations are coming up and that the transfer uh, from the federal government to the provincial government in health care is going to be cut from 6% increase to a 3% increase. So as these, you know, as these difficult, more difficult decisions come up in the next little while, uh, it's possible that that liberal support uh, could drop and that there could be there could be an opening. So nothing is a given in politics, and if you if you act like it's a given, then for sure your plans will be you know derailed down the line. Uh, Michael Dentat in uh, the uh, National Post has a column that says Donald Trump has poisoned the well for other outsider candidates. We remember when uh, Trump started on this journey that Kevin O'Leary was floating some uh, trial balloons out there and and possible uh, thoughts of, of running for the federal conservatives. Um, does considering what has happened in the United States, are people looking differently at these types of of candidates? Not that we should be comparing O'Leary to Trump in any way, other than he seems to be a bit more flamboyant. Yeah, no, it's, it's actually a little difficult to compare, um, because the systems are, are different. And I think it sort of depends on what you mean by, by an outsider. So it can be challenging for an outsider to win a leadership or to sort of come right into politics and be successful, it's a little less challenging for someone who might be unknown. So an unknown could be someone like a backbench MP, for example, that we don't really know about very much, but who's been around or been, you know, a member of the party executive who's been around. If we think about an outsider, you could look at Michael Ignatieff, for example, in the 2006 liberal leadership. Mm -hmm. A lot of people considered him an outsider. Mm -hmm. And he, yeah, good he, point. Certainly, he certainly didn't win that. Bob Ray also contested that liberal leadership. He was also considered an outsider for liberal party members. Hmm. So certainly how long you've been involved in the party um, and your perceived loyalty to that party is very important to the organization itself. And as the, as the Republicans are finding out, Trump does not have the Republican Party's interest at heart. You know, he's attacking the Republican Party. How how do they get past this? How do they get over this? How do they? What does the new conservatism look like? That is a really good question, Scott. And I think that's going to take some time to figure out because if we look at you know a, a website like five thirty eight dot com, it seems pretty clear at this moment that Hillary will win um, will win the White House, and then the Republicans have to assess the damage. So if Trump loses the presidential election, and if when he loses, he takes down Republican senators, and he takes down Republican House of Reps uh, representatives, uh, uh, candidates, then there will have to be sort of some kind of healing process that goes on in that that party. Um, And it really has been Trump. Voters consider character, like leader for their leaders, character matters a lot. It impacts their vote choice. This is where Trump is doing a lot of damage to the party. And uh, how they are going to sort of heal from this is, is, a, is a question that we're going to have to really study and, and see what happens. Because good leaders really try to galvanize the party 
And after a nomination, you try to bring together any divisions, and Trump has done none of that. And part of it might just be that he's not been part of that party, and his, he does not have a sense of loyalty to that party. And if he loses, I expect he'll just walk away from it. Yeah. And it, and it leaves, you know, it leaves everyone else who's sort of been the heart and soul of that party with just sort of some devastation that they'll have to that they have to heal from. Well, he said something uh, a couple of days ago along the lines of, you know, if I end up losing this thing, it'll be the biggest waste of time and money I've ever... Uh, and you just thought, holy smokes. Yeah. <laughs> what about the rest of them? And you think about Republican volunteers, you know, yeah. Americans who yeah. are going about trying to, you know, help get voter turnout and who have spent their whole life donating money to that party. And mm. this is what what they see. I mean, that's very demoralizing. It's just demoralizing. Many have so, said that America is responsible for their, for what is happening, for what we see now, uh, the political parties, the way they play the game. How has this changed politics? What are we going to learn from this in, well, in every country, not just America? Yeah, well, certainly what America shows us is that politics have become far more polarized. So politics is supposed to be about the art of the possible, and it's also about the art of compromise. But now in the sort of this era of permanent campaigning, what we end up with is that to compromise is, is viewed as to lose. So mm. if you're compromising, you're losing, and no one wants to lose. Uh, and so, you know, this just, you know, opinions are just becoming far more polarized. And and it, and it is everywhere, but it's especially difficult in the American system because they've, you know, they've got checks and balances and they've separated their executive and their legislative branches, which can be positive in some ways and it can be destructive in other ways because you can prevent all kinds of legislation from going through. You can take out, you know, your, take things out on the other party by trying to stymie their policy agenda. Yeah. Um, and that's how tra- and that's how Trump got traction. I mean, this is a protest vote more than anything. Yeah, there. Were, I mean, after two thousand and eight, there were a lot of you know the Tea Partiers yeah. who, were, who really wanted who wanted something different. And I and so it also says that you know politicians have a hard time being responsive to the public hmm. too. Um, but part of that is the public has a whole lot of different demands, and we're never satisfied. And we we often have anything complimentary to say about about politicians or our, or our systems of government. So I think there's a you know there's a little bit on both sides, both those who are in power and those who are looking at those in power, um, and how we assess our system. Uh, it, it really seems that uh, the politician has changed in the last decade or so. Uh, and polls say that, that people don't like Trump or Hillary. It's sort of holding your nose and vote, which happens a lot in, in, in a lot of elections uh, around the world. Uh, what do we want? What is the next leader going to look like? I mean, a lot of people are looking to Trudeau and say, wow, that's that's the next generation of Canada. Uh, what's after that? What is, you know, he, 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 he had more of a all-inclusive, and a warm and fuzzy feeling than, than what Harper had. But really, the governments aren't that much different. It's just the packaging around them and how it's all presented to us. What do, what do people want in a leader? Well, for the most part, they want someone... Well, what, what our studies show is that uh, they want someone who has good character, who they perceive to be as competent, who they also see as bringing together and brokering different interests, and who is for the most part, trying to do something for, for the public good. 
so we are we are self-interested certainly what can the government do for me um canadians as a whole have a little more of a collective outlook which is why we are invested in systems like our you know our healthcare system mm-hmm. and and canada pension plan so i mean they can want lots of different things from their leaders but character and competence are certainly two characteristics that voters assess every potential leader as having, and that can impact what it, you know, what their vote choice will be. Has what has happened in the United States with the Republicans and Trump has that uh, tarnished the conservative brand in Canada? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. No, the, I mean the conservatives in Canada have such a long history. Um, and everybody. So did the Republicans. I, yeah, but I mean, with that system, I mean, here yeah, though, it's, it's, it's party government, right? Yeah. And and so it's a different system. And and Trump is just so different that how he acts and what he says would not have a reflection on what the Conservative Party of Canada, um, how, what their policies are and their ideologies are. It's probably for Canadians a little more. It's probably more sort of careful entertainment in mm. some ways, right? Uh, How do you explain the interest in the debates? I mean, the numbers they're pulling in are like Super Bowl numbers. I think, yeah. I, I mean, the first one, absolutely. Uh, it was big numbers because we were all interested to see, I mean, how does Trump perform under pressure? I mean, that's a real big thing for a leader. You have to, for the scrutiny of a campaign, you're under so much public pressure that you have to be able to perform well. And he he has a very hard time with any piece of criticism. So I think everybody tuned in to see, A, how would he handle himself? Is he presidential in terms of a debate scenario? And it turns out he's not as presidential as, as some may have hoped. But uh, we still we still want to watch that. And, and the second debate, it became mudslinging very quickly. So... It'll be interesting to see what happens with the third debate. I mean, at this point, I'm not even that interested in watching the third debate. <laughs> yeah, the first one made me feel kind of ugly, you know? Yeah, <laughs> it made me feel not, dirty. <laughs> exactly. It's not very informative. Yeah. And so you don't actually know what the plans are for yeah. both of these both yeah. of these nominees. It's more like watching an episode of Survivor. Uh, yeah. Obviously... Um, you know, Donald Trump had an opportunity here or has an opportunity here that only if, you know, the rich and famous really get. Have people or are there people out there that feel that he squandered this opportunity? He's blown it. Uh, there might be some. I think there are others that probably say he might be a little surprised that he got this far, mm-hmm. that he didn't actually want the job in the first place. Right. But it's great for his own brand or it might be great for his businesses. And now he's sort of... He's in it, and he won the nomination, and now he figures he's got to go through with it. Um, so I don't know if it's so much that he squandered an opportunity as he didn't really want the opportunity in the first place. Do you think this uh, will be good for his brand in the end? I would say that this has probably put a little more spotlight onto his character that a number of Americans would not have known about. Um, so in the end, it might not be that great for his brand, particularly when it comes to his positions on, on women and, and what he has said and, and done, that there are a number of people 
who thought probably more of Donald Trump before he got into this Mm. than they do now. Dr. Anna Esselman has been with us, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Waterloo. Anna, thanks very much for the time and insight. Fascinating discussion. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.